Good morning, church. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. Excited to dive into you into a new sermon series. Uh, a long time ago, we went through the book of 1 Peter together. We looked at the call to be set apart as a people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and to live holy lives in the midst of much suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. And now we're going to dive into Peter's second letter together. This was written shortly before his death, and he was writing to remind his recipients to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, to grow in godliness and to be on guard against false teachings and false gospels. And so I, I was thinking about this idea of growth and godliness, and even just the other day, um, we were having a conversation with people that were over at our house, and Casey was talking about the need for proteins to be able to grow and to be able to maintain a healthy diet. And a lot of times we have to supplement those proteins if you're not getting enough in your normal diet. And so um, recently, in all my efforts of trying to get in better shape as I'm nearing 40 and I don't want to make all those efforts uh, post that when it's harder. So I've started taking some of this protein powder. A buddy recommended it to me. And um, you just add a little, it's a chocolate protein powder, but you add a little bit of this dried peanut butter in here and it is delicious. I don't know if it's the healthiest way to get protein, but I am all about it. So I'm just going to leave this here. Um, because as we're talking about growing in godliness and growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, Peter's going to be writing a lot about how we do that. What are the ingredients for growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? And so there's a lot more that goes into your physical health than just some protein powder, but I'm just leaving this here for right now so you kind of get the idea. There are some certain ingredients involved when we talk about the growth that you need. Spiritually, that's true, too, that there are ingredients that we have been given. And we're going to look at this more next week. You've actually been given all the ingredients that came with your faith. Everything that you need to grow in godliness came with your faith in Christ Jesus. But Peter says things to his recipients in this letter. He says to us things like, I'm writing to remind you. I know of your sincere faith I know that you truly believe these things, but I, I'm writing to remind you of the truth that you know. And so if you feel a desire to grow in godliness or you ever feel the need to be reminded of the truths that you know concerning Christ and his gospel in the midst of your everyday life, then Second Peter is for you. And so we're going to be in Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 through 4 this morning. And if you're physically able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. This is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and a very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to pray for us as we dive in. Father, we praise you for the gift of your word. Lord, as I pray all the time with our children around the dinner table as we open your word, we are asking for you to turn on the light bulb inside our hearts to help us to see what we could not see without your gracious enabling, without the illumination of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that the Spirit searches the mind of God and you disclose the things that are of God to us, that you condescend to speak to us. And so I pray that you would find in us humble hearts that are eager to listen and to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we witnessed history these last couple of weeks. Queen Elizabeth II, who was the ruling monarch over the UK and Northern Ireland for over 70 years, who was known to have served her people faithfully, passed into the presence of her master, Jesus Christ, and she left a country full of grieving citizens. This is the longest ruling monarch, I think, in Britain's history, over 70 years. And maybe it's because we serve an ultimate king and we also don't live in an earthly monarchy. And so I've always been fascinated with the idea of earthly monarchs, kings and queens. And, and then even this succession, what happens when one dies and how does that work? How does, how does who's next in line and what happens to the other siblings? And so I, I looked into this and I read last week's historically significant King Charles III now, formerly Prince Charles of Wales, became the king, and he gave the title of Prince of Wales to his son, William. And Kayla and I were also remarking, just looking at all of this royal family dynamics, that it seems like, and I think it's because it's true, but in their family or in a kind of typical royal setting, you have the people that are rightful heirs that are next in line. And then you see these other brothers and sisters. If you're watching the funeral or you, you just see them walking about and you're almost like, who's that person? Who's that person? And everybody else in the family kind of seems like an afterthought. They seem inconsequential in large of the greater picture of who's next in line of the kings. And if you question this, you can just think, do you, do you know the names of King Charles's siblings? And maybe you've read too many royal family stuff like Kayla has, and so maybe you do, but, but do you know their titles? And even as they're talked about in the news, they just seem less notable, less important. And what's worse is they seem like they're, they're never going to be as notable or as important as those who were the next in line to the throne or those who are related to those who are next in line to the throne. And as I was watching all of this, I was just thinking, do you ever feel that way spiritually? Where 
you look around and it seems like there are those Christians who are kind of next in line to the throne, it seems. They, they seem like God has given them a closer vantage point to his own throne. And when you look at your own life, you think, I didn't get the same privileges or advantage as these other Christians. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I'm not as naturally inclined to reading the Bible because I don't enjoy reading and their life just seems like it's easier than mine. And it seems like that God has given them a different faith than he gave to me or, or a different measure of grace than he's given to me. And you wonder if you're ever really going to reach that level of spirituality or we can be prone to forget Christ and what he's done. And you know that you have the same faith and the same grace, but we're, we're prone to forget all of those things and let the circumstances of our lives loom larger than our God. And so we make excuses for not pursuing Christ in the way that he's called us to, for not trusting him the way that he's called us to. We look at other people trusting Christ better than us, and it's easy to excuse it away as, well, I just didn't have the same upbringing, the same background, the same faith. I haven't walked with Jesus as long. And so you settle, and maybe you settled for so long that you just, you feel stuck spiritually, but you've made peace with it because you've kind of created in your mind kind of a second tier of Christianity. If we go back over to our, our protein shake, that's exactly what's happened here. Um, I could drink this right now, and it'd be pretty nasty. It'd have like milk with some clumpy layers of chocolate that are in there, and some of the, the chocolate and the peanut butter is kind of stuck to the walls here. You can't see it from there, but it's kind of stuck to the walls. And So you might taste it. It might just taste like milk, or it might taste clumpy, and just be like, this, this is not how it's supposed to be. And so what Peter's doing in this letter is... He says, I'm writing to stir you up by way of reminder. You actually have all the same ingredients, all the same faith, the same standing, the same everything you need for life and godliness. But I just want to stir up your sincere hearts. It's sincere. You want to follow Christ. You want to know Christ. You've placed your trust in him. You're looking to him. But so easily we forget and we settle and we get stuck. And instead, he wants to stir us up so that it tastes delicious. Mm, I'm going to have to finish that throughout this uh, message. So instead of settling for a lesser faith or a counterfeit faith, Peter's writing for us to remember to remember Christ and to press on to know him. And so this is the Holy Spirit's exhortation to us through Peter this morning. Remembering the grace and the excellency of Christ, press on to know him and partake of his nature. So certain things that you need to remember this morning, we need to remember Christ and his excellency and who he is and what he's done and the, the bounty of knowing him. And then in light of remembering these, we must press on to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. So that's where we're starting first is remember the excellency of Jesus Christ. Now, we are all prone to admire and esteem what we see to be glorious or strong or beautiful. It doesn't matter if it's with 
feats of strength or skill or art, we are prone to, we're, we're drawn to, and we talk about and we esteem what to us seems majestic or glorious or amazing. It could be um, a sun setting over the Grand Canyon, or it can be, I saw a guy deadlift 800 pounds the other day, and I was like, no way, and I wanted to share it with everybody. But why? It's like a stranger lifting a lot of weight, but it's just uh, want to talk about, want to think about, want to make known acts of great strength or power or beauty or skill. And all of these things are but echoes and traces of the glory and the majesty and the excellence of Jesus Christ. You could take any category of anything that you admire in the world, and Jesus is preeminently excellent and greater in all of those things. You want to talk about strength, you want to talk about beauty, you want to talk about skill, you want to talk about majesty or wisdom, whatever you esteem or admire in the world. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is the essence of the glory of God. There is nothing that can compare to him in majesty or worth. But we talk about Christ and his greatness so much that I want to pause and pray again. I know we just prayed. But I want to pause and pray that as we behold the excellency of Christ, that this doesn't come to you as some stale knowledge about Christ, but that you could hear these things afresh as a, a springboard for worship because you know him. You know these things experientially, not just about him from a distance. And so, Father, we pray that as we gaze upon Jesus these things that we see in this text about him, we want to glory in them. You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. And so we want to see you as you are. The son of God who's reigned with the father and lived and dwelled with him from all of eternity past, who emptied himself and took the form of a servant so that we could know you. And I pray that we would this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're talking about remembering the excellency of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see this first in this text, in his righteousness. In verse 1, Peter is talking about himself being a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm, I'm writing to you who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, how? By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is miraculous grace and mercy, and you will lose sight of how amazing it is that we're even talking about the righteousness of Christ unless you remember our sin and how bankrupt we are apart from his righteousness. And if you're not talking about the grace of God in the same sentence as the righteousness of God, it's not good news. For Jesus to be righteous, perfectly righteous and holy, and to have no framework about him giving his righteousness to us, him sacrificing his righteousness for us, only means that we stand before a righteous judge 
as those who have no righteousness. But you think about how peculiar and how unique the righteousness of Christ actually is. I want to go with you to Romans chapter 3. Because the amazing news is, and you know this, it's not a spoiler. He has offered himself in our place. He has made his righteousness available to us. But when Paul is talking about the righteousness of God in Romans 3, he gives us this stark backdrop of the bankruptcy of man and our need for righteousness before pointing us to how God has abundantly made that righteousness available to us in Christ. So look with me. For the sake of time, we're reading a couple of verses, 10 through 12, and then we'll jump to verse 18. Paul writes in Romans 3, verse 10, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And so just pause right there. You, you put that as the commentary of what you see in the world. Everyone thinks that they have some righteousness, some goodness, some, if you were to go ask a friend, they would say, yeah, I'm not perfect, but actually my, my neighbor used to tell me she didn't think that she had sinned, that she never sinned. It was jaw-dropping to me. I was like, really? She was like, yeah, no, I'm a good person. But this is the commentary of God to that mentality and everything that you see in the world. There's not one righteous person, not one, the kindest person that you know, not righteous before God. The one who gives of themselves to serve in every capacity, and they seem like the most selfless person that you know if they're not in Christ. They are not righteous before God. All have turned aside. All together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. God is not just looking at what you do, but why you do it. All of our attempts to earn our own righteousness or to produce a righteousness because we want to be that kind of person is filthy rags before a holy God. And so he goes on. You can read it on your own. Scripture speaks very clearly to our depravity before a holy God. And, but then listen to this. It, it comes in like a wave of mercy and grace into thirsty soil, if you'll let it. You pick up verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So there you have this frightening reality that every single person is born dead in their sins, alienated from the life of God, born hating God and hating each other and doing whatever we want while sticking a veneer of niceness and kindness over top of it. And he's saying that the law comes to show us how guilty we are. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everyone's guilty. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone's guilty. And there's details of what those look like, and every single person is guilty. And then this says, every single person stands before a holy God to give an account, and there will be a judgment. For by works of the law, 
No human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. No one is going to be able to hold up their efforts before a holy God and say, but God, I did these things. But, verse 21, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness that at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So don't miss this. He's talking about a righteousness that's been manifested apart from works of the law, but it's not just the righteousness that, he, he is talking about the righteousness that's made available to those who place their trust in Jesus and God declares righteous all who call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. That he declares them innocent and pardoned by putting your trust in Jesus. The reason why is because Christ is the righteousness of God. He is the righteousness of God. And he went to the cross in your place as a propitiation for your sins. So that means that all the wrath and fury and hell that you and I deserved for our sin gets put on the righteous son of God, the the just is sacrificed in the place of the unjust so that he could bring us to God, so that he could impute to us his own righteousness. And that completely as a gift by his grace through faith. So the book of Hebrews in chapter four says it this way. He, he's tempted in every way as we are and yet without sin. Jesus lived your life and never sinned against God one time. That is a marvel. You didn't make it till 10 o'clock this morning. This is a marvel. You could take all the sin of all the world through all time and put it on one side of the scale. And you could take the righteousness of Christ and put it on the other side, and he flips the whole thing over. There is no measure to his righteousness, to his holiness to how pleasing he is to the Father for the power of his morally perfect and upright life. And this is the miracle of miracles. Because the grave couldn't hold him, in the Acts he's described as because of the power of his indestructible life, because how perfectly righteous his life was and is, the grave couldn't keep him in its power. And so Jesus rises from the dead and now, having overcome the grave, he imputes that same righteousness to all who call on his name. Now, in each one of these situations of looking at the excellency of Christ, I want you to talk about the implications for you. That means that if you have placed your trust in Christ, that you have obtained the same faith as the apostles by the righteousness of Christ, because it rests on his righteousness. You have obtained the very righteousness of Christ as your own righteousness in the sight of God. So that means 
the same righteousness that is fully pleasing to the Father is the righteousness that you have. The same righteousness that was too much for death to keep down is the righteousness that you have before God. The same righteousness that Jesus now has in heaven as our great high priest is the same righteousness that he has given to you by faith. So you can see the excellency of Christ in his righteousness, but you can also see his excellency in his divine power, the lordship of Christ. If you're still in Romans, flip back to 2 Peter. The lordship of Christ pervades this text. You can see it right out of the gate. Peter was the earthly best friend of Christ Jesus with James and John. And he identifies himself not first by what Jesus has called him to do. Even that comes second. So he says, I'm an apostle. Second, what Jesus has called me to do as a sent one, as a missionary, comes after what he says first. Simeon Peter, a servant of Christ Jesus. as his fundamental identity. He is one who is now the bond slave of Christ Jesus because he is God. He, he even, this is pretty rare in the writings of Paul, but you can see that even in verse 1, at the end of verse 1, when he talks about the righteousness, he says, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there you have it, in plain writing on the surface of the text, that this is the very God of very God, God the Son in the flesh. And Peter is saying, I am his slave. Before I am anything else, I have been called to belong to him. And I have obtained his righteousness. It's the righteousness of God because Jesus is God. He has been exalted with the name above every name at the highest place as God himself. And then you look at verse 3. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's his divine power that's granted us his precious promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature. And so it's the same thing as with his righteousness. You could take all the power that exists in all the world, all the nuclear reactors, all the power, all the, everything that's ever existed. We, we know his power by the way that he's created the world and the way that he's unfurled the stars and is giving you breath right now. But you take that same power, the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and it's that power that he is working in you and for you so that you would become a partaker of his very own divine nature. And so in each one of these ways that you see Jesus' excellency, it's not just that he's excellent in that he's righteous, but further that he shares his righteousness with unworthy sinners. It's not just that he's gloriously powerful and that he has all divine power. It's that he uses his divine power in you, for you, so that you could know him. Paul mentions this in Ephesians 1. He, he wants believers to know the immeasurable greatness of his power, which is at work in those who believe. Or in Romans 8 verse 11, Paul writes, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
So there's no room for you to say that you have a lesser faith or a lesser opportunity to grow in godliness than other believers when the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you and he's working it for you. And that's true of all of his people. And lastly, you could see his divine excellency. This is redundant, but if it's going to be redundant, it's redundant in a good place. You can see his glory in his glory and excellence by and to which he has called us. The language of this text is interesting because in some places, like the ESV, you'll see that he's called us to his own glory and excellence. And then in other translations, you might see it say he's called us by his own glory and excellence, to which you would be right to ask, well, which one is it? And the answer is, yes, he has called you to his own glory and excellence by his own glory and excellence. Now, this glory and excellence is talking about his honor and his worth and his moral virtue and his character. And so in the same ways that we talked about already with regards to his righteousness, it is by Jesus' own perfect character and righteousness that you have a way to living in his own glory and excellence for all of eternity, that he has pioneered a way for you, and it has nothing to do with your merit. It has nothing to do with your worth. It has nothing to do with how you perform this week, that he has called you by his own glory and excellence. This is, when we talk about him securing for us a life in his own glory and excellence, you can go back to that word propitiation from Romans 3. It is not just that Jesus bore all the wrath of God in your place and that he forgave you of, his, of your sins. That would be him just completely taking away your sin and your guilt. That would be expiation by itself. But propitiation means that he did that and then he gives you all the blessing that he deserves for his own righteous life. This is what he's talking about when he says he's called you by his own glory and excellence to his own glory and excellence. We, we talked about this in our reading of the law, that he had set us apart to be a people for his treasured possession so that we would be holy and blameless and we fail in it. And so we confess that and then we look to the righteousness of Christ. You can hear it in Eric's prayer. God, we're sorry. We have not regarded your statutes, your rules, your laws in a way that is in keeping with being a people for your treasured possession. But we have a righteousness in heaven that we are looking to and that we are claiming. And it's by his own glory and excellence that we have been united to God and reconciled and given his peace. And it's by Jesus' own glory and excellence that he will bring us fully at last into his presence to live with him in the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. Jesus says he will not lose one whom he's called to his own glory and excellence. If he began a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Or the way that Jude says it, he is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. All of this is the excellency of Christ, that he would give you his righteousness and that he would work his power for you 
and that he would call you to his own glory and excellence. So we remember the excellency of Christ, but we also must remember the bounty of knowing him. And so this is to be the entire life of a believer. Anybody who's placed their trust in Jesus, I think this is one of the great obstacles or maybe indictments against the church of Jesus, particularly in America. But when Paul writes about Christ in Galatians chapter 3, he says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. That your entire life, as you have taken up your cross to follow Jesus, has become about knowing him and making him known. That is not the main part of your life. That's not the most important part of your life. Jesus himself is our life to where we relate to everything else through him and we seek to honor him and obey him and know him, not just know about him. I think this is one of the most prevalent examples I've used in discipling relationships. I could say that I know Michael Jordan because I grew up watching WGN and watched all the basketball games and knew all the stats. But if I actually ran into Michael Jordan on the street, he would not know me. There is a vast difference between knowing about somebody and knowing somebody themselves. And so when we talk about the bounty of knowing Jesus, I am not talking about the bounty of knowing a lot of facts about Jesus from his word. I'm talking about walking with him as your covenant friend and your master, where you know him and he knows you. And this text gives us so many different benefits that are found in knowing Jesus. So first you see that God gives us the same standing and common faith as the apostles through knowing Christ. Verse 1, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteousness, his power, his glory that we've already looked at are the same for you as they have been for all the saints through all the ages. And this is amazing. We would think that if anybody had a different standing, it would be the apostles, the ones who walked with Jesus for three years, the ones who were commissioned to write scripture and who were the foundation layer of the church, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. But Peter is saying, no, no, no. Your standing before God is the same as mine. Your righteousness before God is the same as mine. You, you don't have a lesser standing before God because our righteousness is the same in the righteousness of Christ. And it's the same line of thinking that James uses in James chapter 5 when he's talking about how Elijah prayed fervently and God responded miraculously to Elijah's praying. And he says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed. And the whole point is to draw you out of that kind of thinking that would say, well, God heard Elijah pray and shut up the heavens and made it to where it didn't rain for three years because Elijah had a prophet standing before God, and he was mightily used of God. Elijah also did some other pretty crazy things that I will never do. And so James is saying, no, Elijah had a nature exactly like yours. 
And he was heard by God because of his fervent praying and his faith. And God will hear you in the same way as you pray. And so this is what Peter's doing here. We have the same faith as all the saints through all the ages. You look at any, faith, any saint that you admire, and they do not have a different standing before God than you. And that is a bountiful gift of his grace that comes through knowing Jesus. But God also gives us multiplied grace and peace through knowing Christ. In verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So in blessing them with grace and peace, Peter also gives them the location of where this kind of grace and peace are found, right? This is, if you want more grace in your life, more favor of God, more blessing of God, where that is going to be found is in his chief blessing of knowing Jesus. That is where you're going to grow in grace is growing in the knowledge of Christ. But if your life is lacking peace, And you mainly feel anxiety and stress and worry and anxious toil. Where peace is to be multiplied to you is in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's in knowing him and knowing his character and his ways and his promises and what he's doing. So that in the midst of fearful circumstances or suffering, or affliction, or unknowns, you can look to Christ, and because you know him, and you know him to be reigning over all things, you know him to be working all things according to the counsel of his will with perfect wisdom and understanding, and you know his character, that he's for you, then you can trust him. He is able to keep you in perfect peace as your heart and your mind are fixed on him. Grace and peace are multiplied to us when you have the mindset of Paul. I was going to read it. I'm going to refer you to it in Philippians chapter 3, where he just says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as trash just for the sake of knowing Jesus. I have this one aim, this one desire. I just want to be found in him. I want to know him at any cost to myself. This is all I care about is knowing Jesus and being found in him and in his righteousness that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so may God give you multiplied grace and peace as you avail yourself of the gift of knowing him. So he gives us the same standing in common faith. He gives us multiplied grace and peace all through knowing him. And last, he gives us all things for life and godliness through knowing Christ. You guys ever had that experience on on Christmas Day, you gave gifts to your kids and you should have heard him talking really fast on a commercial when he's like, batteries not included, but then you didn't see that and all of a sudden you're you're opening gifts or you're assembling them. Maybe this is just me because I've had so many little boys and everything requires batteries and we don't ever have enough of them. But you get that fine print of batteries not included and it's like this huge aha moment when They want you to assemble the remote control car, and you're like, oh, I thought it came with the batteries. And it never does. I should have learned my lesson by now. This is not one of those instances where he gave you the faith but not the batteries, where where somehow he, he calls you to a life of godliness, 
And it requires certain ingredients if you're actually going to press on into godliness. But he put in some of what you need. See, this is going to be settled now. I've got to give it a little stir, a little shake. So that it's not just all settled and stuck. But he put everything that you need on this countertop that you've got all these different qualities and elements that are required for growing in a life of godliness. But they came with your faith. Now, you've got to put them in. And Dave's going to talk about that next week. It's on you to make every effort to put them in. And he's going to shake you up and stir you up so that it doesn't settle. Still good. And you wonder why your life doesn't taste like chocolate and peanut butter, but maybe you just forgot to put them in. He gave them to you. And now Peter's stirring you up by way of reminder so that you don't leave here tasting like some clumpy milkshake. But instead, you can say, I, I have been given everything that I need for a life of godliness. You see, Peter does this a lot in his writing where he, he pairs these two terms together, but it's not saying a different thing. He's not saying he's giving you everything that you need for life, and then also he's giving you everything for godliness. He's saying, no, no, no. He's giving you everything you need for a life of godliness, for a godly life. You, you want to live godly in Christ Jesus. He has given you every single thing that you need for it. And where it is found is in knowing Jesus, not just knowing about Jesus, but actually knowing him, knowing his word, walking with him, communing with him. And in Christ, you will find as you abide in him and he abides in you, everything you need for a godly life. This is the bounty of knowing him. So we remember the excellency of Christ. Remember the bounty of knowing him, and last, remember the privilege and the pathway of sharing in his holiness. The privilege and the pathway of sharing in his holiness. Look at verse 4. So this is a pretty Pauline-like sentence. Paul, he, Peter will later in this letter say some of Paul's writings are pretty confusing and hard to understand, and everybody reads that and thinking like, whew, I'm not the only one, Peter. And then, but Peter does his own Paul thing here in this sentence where it's, there's kind of some moving parts and pieces and you have to hold one here and then connect it over here to see what he's talking about. So verse four, he's saying, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises. By what? By his own glory and excellence. So by Jesus's own perfection and moral virtue and his own godliness, he has now granted to you his precious and very great promises. Why? Why do we have these precious and very great promises from God's word? Well, he tells us. So that through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, Peter here doesn't focus on the content of the promises it could be that he's referring to what he talks about later in chapter 3 where he's talking about the promise of the new heavens and a new earth and the hope that we have in Jesus restoring all things. He could be talking about the promised Holy Spirit that the Father promised that he would send that has, was promised all throughout all the Old Testament to all of God's people or just all the promises that find their yes and their amen, their fulfillment in Jesus but it's by these precious promises in God's word, and this is the focus, that you become a partaker 
of Jesus' own divine nature. And so this is where it's important to understand the, the already and the not yetness of your salvation in Jesus because you have already been united to Christ by faith. And Scripture says right here, you already have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, even though you very much feel that corruption in you all the time. So which is it? Have you escaped from the corruption of sinful desires? Or are you escaping? Will you partake of the divine nature or have you already? And the truth is, yes, he has united you to himself. You have died with Christ, so you've been freed from sin. And now he calls you to be putting to death what is earthly in you as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind and his word and he conforms you to the image of his son. And one day you will completely escape the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire and you will become completely a partaker in the divine nature and will be made exactly like Christ in all of his glory. And so we are, we are on this journey, the spectrum. Positionally, all these things are true of you already. You have already escaped the sinful desires that are in the world and the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires and he has given you everything you need to escape it still every day, to escape it, to be putting to death what is earthly in you and to fight by the power of the word of God and the Holy Spirit dwelling richly in you to become now a partaker of the divine nature. And you make progress on that journey now. You grow in Christ-likeness. That is what the divine nature is, Jesus' own nature. It's his holiness. And so you actually make strides in becoming a partaker of the divine nature here and now. We know that when we see him, we're all going to be taken from about 1% like him to 100% like him in the moment. But wouldn't you like to go from 2% like him to 100% like him? That we can actually make progress in becoming like Christ and becoming partakers of his divine nature. And it will not happen. And you hear this. That will not happen apart from the promises of God's word. This is why he gave them to you. He says he gave you these precious promises so that by them, this is the only way, by them, you may become partaker of his divine nature. So, Jesus is saving to the uttermost those that come to draw near to God by him. And he uses means. And so he is going to keep you. He is going to preserve you. He is going to make you grow in holiness. And he is going to make you exactly like him. And how he is going to do it is as you immerse yourself in his precious promises and you take hold of them by faith. As you press on to know him and you put away lesser loves and sinful desires and you press on to know Christ, that is where you will find all these bounties of knowing him. That is where you will find the assurance of having a faith of the same standing as the apostles because you have the same righteousness, the same power, the same glory that they have all as a gift of knowing him. And so we press on. And so in closing, Elijah and Jordan, you guys can come back up, but there are no 
lower tier Christians, beloved. There's just sons and daughters. And if you're a son or a daughter of God, then you are heir with Christ. That you have this promise to look forward to that if he did not spare his own son, but gave him over for us all, how will he not also with Christ freely give us all things? That it all belongs to you. And John writes in 1 John 3 that it, it doesn't yet appear now like it will. But you are children of God now. You don't look like it. Not like you're going to. Not shining like the sun in all of its strength with the glory of Christ. But you are not going to be a son or a daughter of God more then than you are right now. One million years from now, when we're with him in his glory, and there's no more sin, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more anything in you to be angry about or frustrated with. You're just like Christ with him in his glory. You will not be more righteous then than you are right now because it's not your righteousness. It's his. And so if you know these things, then blessed are you if you live in light of them. If you are reminded of the excellency of Christ and the bounty of knowing him and you felt stuck spiritually, then be stirred up by way of reminder to say, he is not only holy, holy, holy and righteous and good, but he's gracious and he's mine. So I want to press on to know him. I want to press on to become like him. I'm not going to settle or get stuck with this besetting sin or this laziness spiritually or this lack of fervor and pressing on to know him or sharing the gospel. If this is what he's called me to, I want to give my life to him because he is my life. So let's pray to that end. Father, we praise you for the righteousness of Christ. We praise you for your grace and your mercy that you have given him for us so that whoever believes on him would not perish but have eternal life. We thank you that you have made us heirs of you with your own son. Lord, please, as we study this book, Help us to not be nearsighted, to forget our former redemption or to forget the glory that's coming and just to be living our life for ourselves or reacting to life as it comes to us. I pray for every believer in the room, any believer who listens to this online, God, please give them a conviction. They have the same righteousness that the Lord Jesus himself has. And we all have this same hope of being with you forever in your glory. And so I pray that you would give us grace to take hold of you, to press on to know you and to grow in godliness. Thank you that you've given us everything that we need. I pray that we would take hold of it and employ them, use them to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.